And this is going to be the basis for this message. So let's go ahead and read that today because we want to know what the foundation is this morning. And this is Paul writing. It says, And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Well, the name of my message this morning is called Wake Up, Clean Up, and Suit Up. Somebody say that with me. Wake up. Clean up, suit up. Wake up. That's our first point today. And it's, it's that beginning of that verse, that passage, Romans 13, 11. It says, and do this, understanding the present time. Yeah. Understanding, that word means to discern, to understand, to perceive. Understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up. From your slumber. If you've been asleep, this is the day that you're going to wake up because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. A priest and a pastor were standing by the side of the road holding up a sign that read, The end is near. Turn around before it's too late. One motorist who sped by yelled out his window saying, Leave us alone, you religious nuts. Then, from around the corner, they heard screeching tires and then a splash. Do you think, said one clergy to the other, we should have just put up up a sign that says bridge out instead? How many believe that Jesus is coming back? How many believe that he's coming back soon? You don't have to be super prophetic to know that things in our world are converging to a head. Now, in the 70s, when I was growing up and I was in the church, there was a super emphasis on the coming back of the Lord. I mean, we we didn't know from one week to the next, we didn't know that if we were going to miss the rapture, right? I mean, we lived from week to week. And there were even movies about it, about the coming back of the Lord. And how many know that fear is not a good basis for salvation, right? It's not a good keeper, you know, when you're afraid all the time about your, about your place in salvation. And sometimes when I was at home alone, I would think, man, I missed the rapture. I, I missed it. And I would be really afraid. But p- positionally, If you are a Christ follower and you've received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, positionally, you are ready for the coming back of the Lord. Because of salvation, we are ready. If we are in Christ, we are ready. From that standpoint, we are prepared. But if I'm honest, I have to say that I have more kingdom work to do before Jesus comes back. If I'm honest, I I have to say that I haven't lived in the urgency of the moment that Jesus could come back at any time. Medically speaking, the deepest state of sleep 
Do you know what that's called? When you are in the deepest state of sleep and you can't speak and you can't see, you are in a coma, medically speaking. But we don't want to be spiritually asleep. Lord, wake us up. Wake us up. The first century Christians, when Paul wrote this, they believed that Jesus was going to return immediately. They were waiting at that time, and as time went by, they began to become casual. They began to lose their sense of commitment to their faith. So Paul wanted to remind them that our ultimate salvation is close at hand. So if Paul wrote that to the Church of Rome in 56 AD, over 2,000 years ago, we must pay attention today, right? We must pay attention because we are closer than we have ever been before. Every generation in Christ must live like it is the last. Let me say that again. Every generation in Christ must live like it is the last. And if you agree with that, you can say amen this morning. You can say something. It's kind of quiet in this church, but um, let's get stirred up. We're going to get warmed up. We, we had another hour of sleep, right? We should be awake this morning. Matthew 16, 1 through 4 says this. On one day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to test Jesus demanding that he show them a a miraculous sign from heaven to prove his authority. Jesus, he replied, you know the saying, red sky at night means fair weather tomorrow. Red sky in the morning means foul weather all day. You know how to interpret the weather signs in the sky, but you don't know how to interpret the signs of the times. Only an evil, adulterous generation would demand a miraculous sign. But the only sign I will give them is the sign of the prophet Jonah. Then Jesus left them and walked away. It was like a mic drop experience, right? Jesus said that and he dropped the mic and he walked away. The Pharisees wanted a sign. Even though they saw Jesus healing the sick day after day, casting out demons, even raising the dead. It wasn't enough for them. They refused to see what was right in front of them. Now, I don't want to be that way. And I pray you don't want to be that way either. We want to see with the clarity of the Spirit. We want to see with the eyes of the Spirit to perceive what God is doing in this day. And Jesus gave them the greatest sign ever. It was the sign of the prophet Jonah. Remember Jonah? He got swallowed up and he was in the belly of the well for three, day, for three days. Well, the son of man was swallowed up in the bowels of the grave. And he remained there for three days. But death couldn't keep Jesus buried. He took the keys of death away from the devil. He stripped him of every weapon and authority. And then Jesus led a victory train to heaven. And he and heaven partied while he led that triumphal procession and sat down at the right hand of the Father. And if Jesus could do that, then you better believe he's going to come back again. Because if he did what he said, then he's going to do what he said now. Recently, I heard T.D. Jakes, and he, he spoke an awesome message. But what really stood with me was what 
the altar call that he had. It was so stirring after the message was done. And T.D. Jakes, as he was imploring people to come forward to receive Jesus, he emphatically told them to look at the state of our world. Look at the state of our world. Look at the pandemic. Look at the deaths and the turmoil and the panic and the anxiety. And then T.D. Jakes said this, we are living in the days of the book of Revelation. We're not waiting for it. We're already here. He said, these are the last days to which I concur. Jesus is coming. He's coming back soon. So what should be our mindset? Well, 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 and 2 says, tells us what our mindset should be. And Paul writes this and says, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ already, already had come. Paul was writing this to the church regarding the, the coming of the Lord. And he said that we are not to be suddenly shaken in our composure. You know how when we hear about bad news, like how our mind, it just goes to the worst thing, worst imaginal scenario possible. It just goes there. And you know how when we hear things, our emotions starts to rise up in us and we get agitated. Uh, we don't want to let our emotions to take over. We don't want to let our mind think about what, what can happen. Because no matter the news that we hear or no matter who's saying it, we are not to be shaken in our composure. Congratulations to the Braves on winning the World Series, right? Congratulations. But my Dodgers were in the playoffs, so I'm proud of that. I'm proud about that. A warning, this is a Dodger fan illustration, okay? So just bear with me. Game five of the World Series. Pastor and I, I mean, sorry, game five of the playoff series between the Atlanta Braves and the Dodgers. Game five, we couldn't watch the game. So we, um, but my husband was recording the whole playoff series and the, everything, the whole World Series. So we knew that um, they had won the game. We heard that the Dodgers had won the game. And so when we went home, um, pastor, he was going to watch the game. Now, I never understood why you would want to watch a game if you already know the outcome, right? I, I never understood that. You know, I'm, bear with me, I'm a growing sports fan. But when I saw the Dodgers win, when I saw Pujols give his whole effort and run to the, run to those bases. When I saw Chris Taylor make three homers, wow, it was amazing to me. And I was so excited. Well, I want to remind us that we are in a fixed fight. Jesus wins the battle at the end. He has all the victory and we're going to win because we're with him. We know that we are victorious. We know that at the end, we already know, so we have no reason to fear. We have no reason to allow anxiety to take over us because we know that Jesus wins. 
First Thessalonians 5 verse 6 in the NIV says, So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. Let us be awake. Our salvation is closer than when we first believed. Let's wake up. Come on, tell your neighbor, let's wake up. Come on, if your neighbor is asleep, really wake him up. Come on, this morning. So Paul tells us what to do. He tells us to wake up, but then he tells us to clean up. Clean up. Romans 13, 12 and through 13. It says, the night is nearly over. The day is almost here. Let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime. And then he goes on to say these various different behaviors. And I'm going to talk about that. I'm going to bring some explanation to that. He says, not in carousing. What's carousing, you may ask? Well, carousing was used at that time for a Greek word that said, uh, that described when people would go and worship their God. They would gather together at night and they said, okay, we're going to go worship this God because they had many, many gods. And tonight we're going to worship this God, God. And they would go out into the streets and then it would just be an atmosphere that anything goes. It was a partying atmosphere. And that's what that word carousing means. It means revelry, partying. And, and we see that today. There are people that live for the weekend. They live for the weekend. Uh, they, they work and they try to get through so that they could party all weekend long only to wake up and find, I got to go party next weekend again because it's not enough. I always have to look for that next experience. And there are people who are so bored with life that they're looking for anything, something that's go- going to bring some, some type of uh, meaning to their lives. That's what the word carousing means. And then it says, not in carousing and, and then and drunkenness. And Paul was only talking about alcohol. He was talking about any substance. An intoxication of any substance because the Lord doesn't want us to be under any, anything else. He wants us to be under the, the spirit. He wants us to be under the influence of the spirit, not any type of substance. And so the Lord doesn't want us to give ourselves. He doesn't want us to be in altered states. He wants us to, like the word says, wake up. He wants us to be sober and aware of things. And then it says, not in sexual immorality. And this means any sexual behavior that is not under the covenant of a man and a woman. So the the word of God says anything outside of that is out of bounds. Anything outside of that, sexual immorality. So this is what Paul wants us to understand. And then it goes on to say, and debauchery. What is debauchery? Debauchery is lustful, unclean thoughts and actions. So it's not just the act of adultery or fornication, the act of of having an affair or the act of two unmarried people engaged in sex. No, it's the thoughts that lead to those actions. Any type of sexual activity that is not, that is unclean, that is not in the bounds of what the Word of God says. And then, 
Paul is not only dealing with the outer, he's going to deal with the inner too. And he says, not in dissension and jealousy. Dissension means strife. It means just to have that, that unforgiveness with other people, quarreling and debates. Well, we see a lot of that on Facebook, right? Like, it's so much debate. I can't believe how many Christians debate in an open forum before the whole world to see. They're debating there online. It says not to be that way and not in jealousy, not in envying or, or rivalry. Having that type of, I want what that other person has. You know, having those ugly attitudes in the inside of us. And this is not an exhaustive list, but this is what Paul mentions at this time in this passage. The world will look like the world, but the church ought to be the church. Come on, I'm going to say that again. The world will look like the world, but the church ought to look like the church. Now, I love the church. I've given my life to the service of the church, but the church needs a cleanup act. There has been scandal, and there has been outright sin in the church. And I'm not only talking about the people who attend the church, but I'm also talking about the leadership as well. We've seen a lot of scandal in, the, in church leaders at, at, very recently. We've seen this happening. When Paul was writing to the church, at the time, he lived in the city of Corinth. Now, the city of Corinth was a very populist city, populated city. It was a city that was a commercial city. It was an important city. But it was also a city where there was a worship to the goddess Aphrodite, or, the, or another name for her was Venus. And in this city... There was a temple in her honor. And in that temple, there was over a thousand temple prostitutes in service in that temple. So this is the climate that Paul's writing. And he's saying to the church, this is, this is how the world is. This is the climate. And I want to say that it's, it's kind of like today, maybe I believe it was even worse to be in a place where there was just so much idol worship so blatantly out there. But Paul is telling that church and he's telling us today that there ought to be a difference between the world and the church. We are not to be like the world. Us and the world are not buddies. In fact, in James 4, 4, it says this. You have become spiritual adulterers who are having an affair, an unholy relationship with the world. Don't you know that flirting with the world's values places you at odds with God? Whoever chooses to be the world's friend makes himself God's enemy. He was writing that to the church. We are to be holy because God is holy. And if we say God is our God, we ought to reflect him. There's this journalist, Ben Sixsmith, and he wrote an article in 2020, last year. He wrote this article and he said this, I'm not religious, so it's not my place to dictate to Christians what they should and should not believe. Still, If someone has a faith worth following, I feel that their beliefs should make me feel uncomfortable for not doing so. If they share 90% of my lifestyle and values, 
then there is nothing especially inspiring about them. Instead of making me want to become more like them, it looks very much as if they want to become more like me. I believe that the world wants the church to be the church. In the book of Revelations, Jesus evaluates seven churches, and he tells them what he likes and what he doesn't like. He commends them and he corrects them. And he, when he was evaluating the church of Ephesus, he commends them for opposing a group called the the Nicolaitans. I'm going to get it. The The Nicolaitans. And he commends them for not going along with the practices. In Revelations 2, verse 6, it says, But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, if Jesus is saying he hates something, then we need to pay attention to what he hates. Who was this group that Jesus said he hated the practices of? Two early church leaders, Irenaeus and Hippolytus, who recorded the events of the early church, said of this group, the Nicolaitans were the spiritual descendants of Nicholas of Antioch. Who was Nicholas of Antioch? Well, remember in the book of Acts, when they were having a struggle with the feeding program, when the, when the, when the, the, the Greek-speaking Jewish widows began to complain that they weren't getting served like the Hebrew-speaking widows. And so there was a, a, a disruption in the church. And so the apostles got together and said, okay, to remedy this, we're going to appoint deacons. We're going to appoint seven deacons. And so in Acts 6, verse 5, it says this. Everyone liked this idea. They chose the following to be deacon, Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas of Antioch, an earlier con- convert to the Jewish faith. We see that in parentheses. Nicholas of Antioch, an earlier convert to the Jewish faith. So that gives us a little clue of who Nicholas was. So we see that Nicholas of Antioch was not a Jewish man. In fact, he was a Gentile, which means he grew up as an idol-worshipping Gentile. That he grew up, his family worshipped idols. That's how he grew up. But then he came to the Jewish faith. He 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 came to know and, and serve the God of the Hebrew people. And he became a follower of the Jewish faith. But after that, he heard about Jesus. And then he became a Christian. So, Nicholas of Antioch, we see that he was a free thinker. We see that he was a man that was able, he didn't care what other people thought. He wasn't afraid to to stand up to opposing views because we see that he forsake his his Gentile roots and then he became a Jewish person, which would bring persecution. But he wasn't afraid of the Jewish uh, religious people because then he became a Christian. 
And so we see that he was not afraid to oppose because he changed his religions twice. But the church history leaders go on to say, but after a time, Nicholas of Antioch began to believe that it was okay to mix his beliefs. That you could be a Christian, but you could mix a little bit, mix that with a little bit of idolatry. And you could mix it with a little bit of occultism. It was okay to believe what you wanted to believe. You could take the parts that you liked and dismiss the parts that you didn't like. You didn't have to abstain from the sexual sins that were so much of a, a part of idol worship. He taught a dangerous doctrine of compromise. And not surprisingly, he had followers. Revelations chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, it clarifies what the Nicolaitans believed. In Revelations 2, verse 14 and 15, it says this, and Jesus is still talking. He says, but I have a few complaints about you. You tolerate some among you whose teachings is like that of Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and committing sexual sin. In a similar way, you have some Nicolaitans among you who follow the same teaching. Now, let me give you a little bit of background. Remember Balaam? He was a prophet that was hired by Balak to go and curse the people of God. And he tried to curse them. In fact, Um, Three times he tried to curse the people of God, but he couldn't curse them. But he still wanted the money and the riches that were offered to him. So he told Balak, you know what, I can't curse them, but I'll tell you what to do. I'll tell you what to do. Take some of your beautiful women and send them among the Israelites. And as they go among them, have them invite them to the the idol-worshiping services. Invite them to that. And before long, what happened in Israel, it infiltrated and and it got inside where the people started to worship false gods because of this tactic. Because if the enemy can't get us from the outside, he'll try to get us from the inside. The enemy can't come. The gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. Oh, but he'll try to do a military tactic where from the inside of the church, he'll try to destroy it. This is what compromise is. In fact, the name, the name, the Nicolaitans is symbolic, meaning it means conquering the laity. Conquering the laity, that means conquering the people of God. Wow, how fitting is that? And that tactic is alive and well today. The enemy would have us to think, it's okay to mix your religious beliefs. It's okay to believe whatever you think is right. The Bible isn't the only truth. Do what feels good to you. Compromise. When I was in Cancun, uh, I had, there was a day that we went to one of the parks out there, and I was able to do some um, snorkeling. And so it was me and Pastor Arlene, um, 
she's from Shining Light Ministries. Me and Pastor Eileen, we were swimming out there and we were we were snorkeling. And so, uh, you know, we were in this area, and and then I saw this area. I, I started to swim by this area where there was a lot of vegetation. It was kind of by a bank, and in that area, because there was a lot of little caves underneath the water, there was a lot of fish. And so, as I was looking in the water, and I saw these beautiful fish, they fascinated me. And so I started to follow the fish, and I was just like, I was loving, I was taking pictures, and I was just like, it was amazing to me. And then when I came back up to the surface of the water, I I couldn't find Pastor Arlene. In fact, I found out I was lost. I, I was over here, and she was way over there. And it was just like we were so far, but because I was so fascinated by what I was looking at, I got lost. And that's how compromise works. That's how it works, because we're fascinated with something other than the beautiful Jesus. We begin to become fascinated with something else, and we put our fix, fix our attention on that. We become fixated because that's what we really want. Our flesh wants that. We begin to put our eyes on that. And then we find that we're lost. That Jesus is way over there. And we're way over here. And it's not because Jesus moved. It's because I moved. Sometimes when I'm counseling people, they come to me in a moment of crisis and and they're, they're telling me what's going on. And, and then they tell me, I don't know how I got here. And I want to tell you that they didn't get there. We don't get there overnight. It didn't happen. Things like that don't happen. When we come to a point of crisis where we're in a place of sin and Jesus is far away, it didn't happen overnight. It happened little by little by little. And the enemy is okay with that. Because like a sniper, he is okay with that. He's patient. He's okay with gaining territory a little bit at a time. You know, a sniper can move an inch in an hour. The enemy is patient because he knows that if we continue to give little and little and little more to him, he's going to go in for the kill. There's going to be a time that he has us. And this is a tactic that is alive and well. A hunter raised his rifle and took careful aim at a large bear. As the hunter was about to pull the trigger, the bear spoke in in a soft, soothing voice. Isn't it better to talk than to shoot? What do you want? Let's negotiate a little bit. Lowering his rifle... The hunter said, I want a fur coat. Good, said the bear. That's negotiable. I only want a full stomach. So I think we can negotiate a compromise. They sat down to negotiate. And after a time, the bear walked away alone. The negotiations had been successful. The bear had a full stomach and the hunter had his fur coat. Satan says to us, let's negotiate. But there are some things that cannot be negotiable. 
We cannot compromise. We cannot compromise. The church cannot compromise with the world. Christ and the church deserve our very best and utmost loyalty. God is merciful, but the devil isn't. Sin and compromise opens doors that the enemy will use as a base of operation, places that he will wreak havoc in our lives. As a whole, I dare say that the church, to some extent in America, has been in a comatose state, incapacitated through tolerance, through fear, through compromise and sin. R.G. Lee said this, If all the sleeping folk would wake up, if all the lukewarm folk would get fired up, if all the dishonest folk would confess up, if all the disgruntled folk would cheer up, if all the estranged folk would make up, if all the gossipers would shut up, if all the true soldiers will stand up, if all the dry bones would shake up, if all the members of the church would pray up, then we can have revival. But can I go a little bit deeper with us today? Can I? The church must stop expecting the world to be like the church. When we get upset, when the world is just acting like the world, when the people who don't know the Savior act like sinners, 2 Timothy 3 gives us a description of the last days, and it says, In 2 Timothy 3, verse 13, But evil men and sorcerers will progress from bad to worse, deceived and being and deceiving, deceived and deceiving, as they lead people further from the truth. We can't be shocked when the world is just acting like the world. I can't verbally bash and look down on those who are blinded by the enemy, no matter what sins that they are bound up with. And I need this, because naturally, I can have a pharisaical attitude. I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes I want people to live up to my standards. We can't be that way. I have to remember where Jesus found me. Sometimes I forget the mess that I was in when Jesus found me. And I got to remember that Jesus found me where I was at. He came to me. Why did Jesus go to the woman at the well? Because she wouldn't go to the synagogue. She wouldn't come to the synagogue. So Jesus went to her. People can't pull themselves out of the pit that they're in. Thank God that we have a God who is a deliverer, who will come into the pit with him. That is the good news of the gospel that we preach. And we live in a tension of truth and grace. We live in this tension. That on one hand, we understand that God is a holy God. He is. And he he is a God who says, Who can come to me? Who can come to my holy hill? Only those with clean hands and a pure heart. Yes, he is holy. But at the same time, he is also a God of grace who reaches out to us wherever we're at. He is a God of grace who sent his only begotten son to pay the price for our unrighteousness. 
He is a God of grace. Romans 5.20 says this. The law was brought so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And the Greek word for the sins that increase means increase. It will continue to increase. It will continue to get worse. And that would be sad and disparaging and depressing if the verse stopped there. But the verse goes on to say that it is a a grace that is increasing, increasing all the more. And that means that, that the grace of God is being poured out like never before. Something that is growing out of measure, beyond proportion, beyond the banks, a far-stretched extreme. Oh, the devil is trying to do his best, but his best will never be good enough. Anxiety may be triggered by all that's going around us in the world, but that's when the downpour of God's grace comes. Depression may be on the rise, but then here comes the overflowing of the river of grace. Addictions may be binding, but the abounding grace of God breaks every chain and fetter. And this is why I believe that revival is coming. Because as things get worse and worse, many are going to wake up to the fact that the devil is a bad devil. But God is a much, much, much more God. So what an opportunity we have at this time. It's time to clean up. And the third and final point is suit up. Say that. Suit up. Romans thirteen fourteen says, Rather clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. How we are, how we are dressed affects us, right? We need the right clothes to get the job done. Even Spidey knew that. And Adam and Eve's attempts to dress themselves wasn't good enough. The skins of animals were not sufficient to cover their guilt and shame. And I want to say to us, our works are not good enough. That's why we need a Savior. That's why we need Jesus. Because only His sacrifice will suffice. That's why we have to be suited up with Jesus. Tell your neighbors, suit up with Jesus. Say, Jesus looks good on me. Come on, somebody say that. Picture yourself walking into a clothing store. You are in rags, hardly covered. And you have no money. You have come to ask the store owner for some simple clothes, something that's being ready to be discarded or thrown out. But he gives you the finest clothing from the most elite designers, a complete outfit, more than you ever dreamed or expected. Then he says, now conduct yourself in the manner that fits the clothes. Colossians 3, 1 through 4 says, since you have been raised to new life with Christ, Set your sights on the reality of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. 
Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you have died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. We are hidden in Christ. That Greek word for hidden is kratos, and it means to be hidden, to hide or conceal. Military camouflage became important. It was, it was not always uh, a tactic of the, the armies. In fact, the first armies dressed in very colorful uniforms, right? They had those hats and they had feathers and they, they wore colors like bright red and, and blue. But then when long-range distance rifles were developed, things had to change. Because if you were wearing a very bright uniform, you would be hit before you even knew it with a long-range rifle. So they began to devise ways that they could hide people. They could hide equipment. That's where camouflage came in. Well, I want to say we are camouflaged with Christ. We are hidden in Christ Jesus. Jesus is our protection. He is our armor. He is the one that conceals us. So the enemy doesn't have anything on us. Because when the enemy comes to find us or comes to seek us out, he sees Jesus. He sees that we're covered with the covering of the blood of Jesus. And that's, and then he can't do anything about that. Think about it. Esther was hidden in a harem. Moses was hidden in a desert. Elijah was hidden in a cave. David was hidden in the wilderness. And Jesus was hidden in Egypt. We are hidden in Christ. We are camouflaged in him. And putting on Jesus is a metaphor. It's talking about putting him on, putting on his character, becoming, putting on his nature. But it's also a reality that we put on Jesus. He's the armor that we wear. This is a reality. I put off and I put on. I take off my old ways and habits and I put on Jesus. I I have his DNA in me. And when I can't, he can. And when I put him on, I find myself doing his will. His will. When I read the word of God, it gets into my mind and then I act accordingly. When I pray, I commune with the Father and the Son, and then the Spirit of God empowers me to follow His will. The Lord is able to protect us from the evil one and our flesh. He is able to keep us. Because sometimes we are our worst enemy, right? Sometimes we are our own worst enemy. We need that protection. But Jesus has said, put me on. I will deliver you. I will strengthen you. I will give you the help that you need. You are not alone. I am always with you. And I have overcome the world. He's able to fill up our shortcomings. He's able to convict us in our compromise. And he's able to forgive our sins. 
And as we close, I, I want you to dwell on this quote. It's a quote by Jackie Hill Perry. In her book, Holier Than Thou, she wrote this. She said, if God is holy, then he can't sin. If God can't sin, then he can't sin against me. And if he can't sin against me, shouldn't that make him the most trustworthy being there is? God is a holy God. But he loves us. And he made us to be the righteousness of Christ Jesus. And he wants us to live in him. Because he wants us to live a life that is blessed. That goes from glory to glory. He wants us to put him on and to be clothed with him Because he knows the best way to live. His ways are higher than our ways. And when we open the door to the enemy, we're being hurt by those things. God doesn't want us to be hurt. He doesn't want us to be a slave to the enemy, to our sins. He wants us to know a relationship with him. He wants us to have a deep relationship where we understand his ways and his mind so that we can walk in him and then we can live a life that is empowered by the Holy Spirit and then we can, we can know what true freedom and true life really is. That we walk a trust walk with him. Of saying, Lord, I trust you. If you say to give this up, I'm willing to give it up because, Jesus, you said you have a plan for me, a plan not to hurt me, to harm me, but to prosper me, a plan that is good, a plan that will, that will benefit me. That's what the Lord has for us. So today, put your trust in God. Wake up, clean up, and suit up. Let's pray. Lord, we worship you today. And we thank you that you are a God. Lord, who is our creator? So you know, Lord, how life works best. There's so many things in this world that would tell us otherwise. So many compromises, oh God. So many things that vie vie for our attention and our fascination. When really the most beautiful and fascinating thing there will ever be is Jesus. So Jesus, we come before you today. And we pray, oh Jesus, fill up this place with your presence. You have been here through the Holy Spirit, through this whole service. Lord, we pray right now that you would have your way in our lives. Lord, we open up our heart to your word. We don't want the words of, your, of, of the word of God and the passage that we read this morning to go in one ear and out the other. Lord, we want it to rather go deep into our hearts. Lord, that we would contemplate it. And not only contemplate it, we would believe it. And not only believe it, but we would live it out. 
This is what we want, oh God. We want you to have your way in our lives. We want you to be Lord. Be Lord. Like you said, Jesus, we can't serve two masters. If we try to serve two masters, we will love one and hate the other. Lord, we want to serve only you. We don't want to compromise. And today, I know that the Lord has been working. In fact, I'm I'm just going to call people up to the altar today. Because I believe that we are to take action on what we hear. And when we take action, the Lord is able to go deeper in us. Today, there are some of you who have been... You've been, you've been dealing with anxiety because of the things that have been going around in the world, the things that you've been reading, things that you've been hearing, and it's been causing you to be in a state of fear. And I believe that the Lord is saying today, don't keep your eye on that. Put your eyes on me. And let me take your fear away. Let me replace it with my faith. Faith in me. That I'm able to keep you in all circumstances and in all times. That I'm close to you. I'm with you. So right now, if you've been dealing with that in your life, I'm going to invite you forward. I'm going to invite you that, that that spirit of anxiety and fear would be broken off this morning. And then some today have been been dealing with, the Lord has been telling you to get rid of something in your life. And it's it was highlighted in this message, but for some time the Lord has been saying, that thing, that thing, it has to go. It has to go because it's hurting you. It's keeping our relationship at a distance. I want to be close to you. I'm going to help you. But you have to be willing to say, Jesus, I surrender that. I'm not going to live in compromise any longer. I'm going to surrender that. So I'm going to invite you forward. And we are going to pray with you. And for some of us, we're going to renounce some things. We're going to get rid of some things. And we're going to discard those things. We're going to put on Jesus. We're going to put on the armor of light. We're gonna, you're going to be clothed with new clothing today. You, you may have come in heavy, but that's going to be taken off, and, and peace is going to be your clothing today. Jesus, we love you. We thank you, mighty God. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're at work. And for some of you, you've never received Jesus Christ. And as I talked about the last days, in fact, that was, that was something scary to you. Because you, you're like, I don't know if I'm ready. I've never received Jesus. If I, if I were to die tomorrow or if Jesus were to come back, I know I'm not ready. I haven't, I haven't received him. But the word of God says, if you believe with your heart and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. It's a place of coming to say, Jesus, I don't want to live in my own way anymore. I want you to be Lord of my life. And I want to receive you. If that's you, I want to pray with you today. 
If that's you, I invite you to come forward. Because Jesus went all the way to the cross for us. And he asked us to come and to receive that free gift. So as the music plays, I'm going to invite you to take action this morning. And we want to pray with you.